And here we are, the left hand of Le Guin. I'm your host, Kyle Winkler, and I'm here with Maddie Lewis. Maddie Lewis is a dark fantasy writer, occasional media critic, and one third of the Pod Hand, the podcast on dark fantasy, horror, grimdark, and all things berserk with a capital B. Her writing can be found at Blood Knife Magazine, um, which is an excellent magazine to read. I have been uh, dipping into that off and on since I found out about it about a half year ago. Very exciting stuff. Um, how are you doing? Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm doing all right. Uh, I have COVID right now, but I'm like on the mend. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah. You sound good. You look good. I'm hoping that you are on the other side of that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was rough. This is the first day I felt like mostly human. Well, thank you for sacrificing to come on and talk Le Guin. That means a lot. Yeah, I, I'm, ex- I'm really excited too, because I, I never hear anyone talk about this particular novel, um, which never. is why when you, you kind of put out the call for, well, um, you know, who, who wants to talk about Le Guin stuff with me? I'm like, okay, it's not my favorite one of hers I've read. That's Tombs of Atuan, but uh, no one talks about it. So I've, I've got to, I, it's like a civic duty, right? That's almost like the topic of the book would probably lend itself toward that too. So. Uh, so why don't we start with a couple of questions that I always ask. One is, when was the first time you read Ursula K. Le Guin? I think it was probably nine or ten, and um, I, it was Wizard of Earthsea. We, I don't remember if it was in like, like my little like elementary or middle school library, one of the teachers' libraries, and I, I picked it out of that, or if, um, or if it was something my mom had just laying around, but uh, I think my version had a dragon on the cover and I was reading like everything I could possibly find that had dragons in it at that age. Um, Naturally. So that was how I first found it. And I, I like Wizard of Earthsea, but when I, the like conversion point for me where I, I really was like super into it was Tombs of Atuan because I'd, I'd never read anything that was like Tombs of Atuan. Um, in fantasy before, and I mean, you know, you're you're nine or ten, so you haven't read anything that's like much of anything, um, compared to what what it'll be as you know, someone in your teens, twenties, thirties, and so forth. Um, you're gonna love the episode um with Paul Jessup then that talks about tombs. Yeah, I'm really excited about yeah, that. One. That was a good one. Um, it's it's such a great book. So that was where I first encountered Le Guin, and I've. I've actually mostly read, I've read all of the Earthsea books. I've read the short stories from Earthsea. I've read uh, a couple of her essays and the ones who walk away from Omelas. And then the book we're going to talk about, I've actually not dipped into her science fiction very much. I'm not a big sci-fi reader. (laughs) Well, I will say this. But uh, she probably does have that crossover appeal, though, for people. Like if you're mostly a kind of a fantasy person and you don't really Mm -hmm. mess around with SF she might be somebody who you could like dip your toe in with it because her, they're not terribly different. And now that might be heresy to some Le Guin fans, like hardcore people, because like, yes, it's one's SF, one's fancy, but it's her writing, you know? So if you like her writing, yeah. you're probably going to like what she does no matter what it is. So that's just, if you give it a go. Yeah. I've been meaning to dip into like left hand of darkness and the dispossessed and, uh, Oh, lathe of heaven. I have read lathe of heaven. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, that's a good one too. Well, they're all good. Yeah. 
they're all good. Um, so the second question is, uh, when was the first time you read the book under discussion today? The Eye of the Heron. This is my cover. This is not a impressive cover. I, I have this pretty got the one. Newer one. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it was a couple of years ago, like probably like two or three. Um, I think it was like two or three years ago. I was just uh, at Barnes and Noble and I wanted to read something new. And um, actually, no, it was two years ago, I think, because that was the year I, I have a little reading goal for myself. And sometimes I have like a theme or whatever. And that was the year where I decided I'm not going to read anything that I've already read. It's only going to be new books this year. Um, and I was looking in the, you know, science fiction fantasy section and just kind of looking past what they had on the Gwen. And a lot of it was stuff where I either already read it because it was Earthsea or it was, uh, I think they had Left Hand of Darkness too. And then they had The Eye of the Heron and I'd never heard of it before because like I mentioned, no one really talks about this one, but um, I picked it up and it had, you know, an attractive cover. Uh, there's a heron on the cover that it's it's got an animal in the title. And I'm like, I know this one's going to be a science fiction one, because if it was a fantasy one, I'd probably have already heard of it or already read it. Right. Um, but uh, it's got an animal on the cover, which means that's immediately more approachable to me than something with like a rocket ship or right. like a Martian landscape. Um, and I have this like, even though I mentioned I don't really read a lot of science fiction, it's not really a like a preferred genre of mine by any stretch of the imagination. I have this, this personal belief that um, any, like any large genre, not like, you know, not like you're like tiny, like micro genres, like you see in music sometimes, where there's like two artists that right. you could conceivably say are in that genre, but anything that's big and broad, if you say you don't like it, it's just because you haven't, <clears throat> excuse me, you haven't found the thing that you liked yet. Exactly. So, yeah. I thought, I'm like, I don't want to be one of those people who, like, will dismiss something, like, sight unseen, just because it's something that I don't have, like, a, a track record of being super into. So I was like, eh, what the hell? It's, like, not even 200 pages. Um, let's let's pick it up and give it a go. And yeah, I read it in, like, a day. Yeah, it's it's very short. Uh, it's a, another one. The episode, uh, the book I talked about before this was The Beginning Place, which is another short one of hers, which is um, a fantasy. So if you like, that's another these kind of mm -hmm. are coupled i think tor published them sort of back to back um it's very short it's a quick read in fact you, while it is science fiction one of the things that um i thought as i was reading was that it doesn't feel like science fiction because there's no there's no technology in it it's all very the only thing that is science fictional about it is the fact that people from earth have gone to a different planet to start uh, a new colony a new world a new life and uh, it's about more about the psychology sociology between two groups of people who might land on a new planet and want to try to start their lives right or political too it's also right. there's a lot of, there's a right. political theme behind it so let's let's just kind of get into um uh, maybe like a brief summary like if you had to summarize it in your own words just like i don't know a few sentences what would you say so um, this story is about you have, like you said before, that it's, it's a planet that has been previously colonized by groups of people from Earth 
one group of people who were like it was like a penal colony kind of like the a great australia in the sky mm-hmm. and um then the next group of people were like political dissidents who were sent there and you have kind of the the first group of people become like kind of the, almost oligarchs like the bosses of this world and the second group uh tends to work for them and kind of the conflict is they've found this valley and they want to settle there they don't want to be under the thumb of the bosses anymore um the main character is the daughter of one of the bosses and she's basically a class traitor she comes to like sympathize with the plight of the it's called shanty town like shanty like s-h-a-n-t-i um she comes to sympathize with the with those people who want to move to their new place and not be under the thumb of the the oligarchs anymore and ends up joining them and uh yeah it's it's definitely a political story and it it does feel even though it is science fiction it's it's not it's very squishy science fiction like very you're not going to get discussions of like rocket ships or Faster like alien life, biology travel. yeah none of that no none of that and no um transporters no yeah and and that's like the kind of stuff that i, I that tends to turn me off on science fiction because i it just like you start talking about like the physics of faster light travel and my eyes glaze over right 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 so and this not, is a good one for people who might not be into yes. that this is and yeah so it, it's, it's really good because so much of the story is interpersonal and interpersonal and this the scale like the stakes are big but they're not like world ending big um mm-hmm. and they're very important for the characters and yeah, you on care a personal about the character plight. scale yeah yeah you care about it on a personal character scale even though it does have bigger political ramifications within the context of the story um I find something that uh, a lot of like kind of lesser, I, I think lesser to me at least, science fiction and fantasy does is they'll try to make you care about the characters by putting them in a high stakes situation, and that never really works for me. You make me care about the high stakes situation by making me care about the characters first. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I will. That was perfect. The 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 back of the book I have has a very very short synopsis, and it basically says. And by the way, I want to say when you said Shanti or Shanti, it is the, I believe it's the Hindi word for like peace. It's the word that is at the very last words of the wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's got that she's playing off of this wordplay. If you've, if you're listening to us and you haven't read the book, yeah, you get like, she gets like a double meaning out of that. Okay. Uh, The people of peace came as exiles to the prison world of Victoria. So much to unpack just in that one sentence. Uh, There they reenacted Mm -hmm. Earth's oldest conflicts on the soil of an alien world, oppressed and brutalized by the outlaws and criminals who ruled the city. They were forced to the brink of confrontation to portray their long-held vows of nonviolent resistance. Um, And then the character that you mentioned, Luz, L-U-Z, Light, in Spanish, daughter of the city's most powerful leader came to join the people of peace. Uh, she leads them on a perilous journey of discovery to seek the promise of the strange new land. Right. And like you said, she's a class trader. Her father is like the, the, the big boss mayor of, of the city, which it controls the people in the town. And uh, 
through a the people of the town just go to tell the people of the city because they don't want their permission. This is the most aggravating part of this book for me. Is every time I read these scenes where the, the the town people go to talk to the city people, the city people would immediately threaten with violence or police action, and they would blame mm-hmm. the town people. They'd say, "You brought us to this because of your disobedience." And you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Like they're not, they're not even speaking the same language. Like the nonviolent people in the town want nonviolent cooperation. And they're willing to go as far as like civil disobedience to get those things, obviously, right? Very radical 60s politics in the way that like, you know, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, things like that, and which they name check in the book too. Uh, that was always uh, incredibly- this is like They mentioned they call like the mountains that are uh, on the other side of the, like kind of surrounding the valley that they want to go to. Like, I think they call it like the mountains of the Mahatma or something. Yeah, it's exactly. very clearly like referencing yeah. Gandhi. Yes. Yeah, and this this book, by the way, came out in 78. It was published in a collection that uh, Virginia Kidd, the famous uh, science fiction editor, uh, put together uh, called Millennial Women. That came out in 78. My copy was published in 83. So um, it's a late 70s, early 80s Le Guin, which was a very odd period in her career. But um, so, so yeah, um, th- you have the people who are the nonviolent people they want to go uh, further away. They want to uh, investigate and live and tend to this valley land. The big boss people say no, basically. Like they're, it's a pretty simplistic plot in that regard, right? And mm-hmm. but what happens is one of the during this uh, request that they make, they keep one of the of the people from the town named Vera. And for some reason, even though they're very violent, they put Vera. They can't put her in prison. Because they think she's too, what's the word? Um, it's not, prison's not the right place for a woman or something. It's so, they're so misogynistic, it actually reverses on itself. It's very strange. And so instead of going mm-hmm. to prison, she goes to live in the mayor's house and is sort of like not a prisoner, but basically a guest. And that's where. Like house arrest. Exactly. Kinda, yeah. Or a exactly. hostage. Yeah. Hostage house arrest thing. But it's all very, she wants to be a good prisoner it's so strange because she's so nonviolent, so oddly compliant in that way um and she makes friends with Luz, uh the the woman who becomes the main character um those were very interesting scenes where these conversations are going back and forth and i wanted to ask uh what to you was like what's the appeal of this book as you as you're reading it of course you know you want to read something new we told how you found the book but as you're reading, what was the thing that keeps you thinking about it if you keep thinking about it, right? What is it about the book that reaches out to you and goes, hey, this is something, there's something going on here that, that people should pay attention to? I felt like so much of the, so much of the political stuff, was, it was all kind of questions that we still deal with. What's the correct, correct way to protest? Like, it deals with that, like, kind of domestic disobedience. Um, and, and that kind of had me thinking, it's like, well, you know, this is what I would say what the the people are, of the town are doing. This is what I would say is like the morally correct thing to do. This is how I would interpret that. But like, I was thinking in the back of my mind, it was like, would it work like in real life? Or is this more of a, a model for correct behavior? Um That was something that was interesting to me and is more interesting to me now, even than when I read it two years ago is I still can't decide if that like 
extremely, extremely almost devout adherence to nonviolent protest, if that, if I still think that that's admirable and correct, I guess. I'm in agreement. I think a lot of, I think a lot of readers, if they read this today and have never read it before, that might be in the back of their minds too. Um, I also really loved the, I loved the kind of the relationship between Luz and the other characters, especially Vera. And I, I liked that it had kind of the, um, because like you mentioned, the society in the town, they're very, they're, they're very like misogynistic and, and almost like a, almost a benevolent sexism kind of way. There's, there's no Handmaid's Tale stuff really in no, this yeah. book, but women still don't really have a lot of power. Um, they're not really able to exercise like kind of full agency. Uh, and, and that's kind of one of the things, at least how I interpreted the character. One of the things that kind of leads lose to end up going with the people of the town because they have they afford her more of a chance to like be her own person instead of being the person that her father wants her to be the person that her like city society wants her to be and i thought that that was really like i'm like oh man it, uh, it kind of sucks that these topics that um we're writing about in 70s are still just as relevant today uh, i, I, I kind of wish yeah. that this could be outdated but it's really not no and that's um but that's what makes her that's what makes Le Guin so spot on she she still she knows what topics or themes or issues or events are still going to be uh relevant and have a heartbeat even you know 30 40 years after she writes, I mean, that's, that's what I think. Anyway. I mean, I think most of her books still sort of are incredibly relevant to some part of contemporary society. I mean, you know, you brought up the idea of nonviolence and, you know, civil disobedience and, and things like that. And it, it, it does seem a bit naive when I read that. I mean, I understand the success of uh, civil disobedience. I understand the success of nonviolence mm-hmm. in, some, in some instances, but at the same time, I see it now. I was like, uh, I think the people in power, anybody who's part of a police state, anybody who has some sort of, uh, you know, armed authority is just going to stomp all over you, you know, and they're not going to really care. They're going to love that. You know, did you remember that famous picture uh, from a couple years ago of the students lined up and the cop had that orange spray paint and they weren't even doing anything. Mm-hmm. He was just like pff, blasting them in the face with this oh, the pepper spray. Pepper spray yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of how they weren't doing anything this. at all. Yeah. Then they don't do anything. Yeah. They're still getting abused. Right. And so, but that there's a scene here that happens where there's like a tense moment where the people who are armed are against the people who aren't armed. And in, in a very odd paragraph, uh, you kind of have to sort out sideways what's going on, that there has been someone's fired. There's been a, uh, the characters are dead in the aftermath. You find out that there's like this sort of massacre type issue that happened instantaneously. Um, but there's almost sort of like a detente afterwards. And I don't, uh, much like the Gwen's other books, I don't think she's trying to tell you exactly what she thinks is right. I think she sets up a little problem and she lets you sort through a lot of stuff. And so I can't mm-hmm. say that I think Le Gwen's like, oh, well, I'm all in favor of c- civil disobedience and nonviolence all the time. I think she's right. using, thinking through this in this experiment, which is the book. And one of the things that, it, that the summary on the back of this book said, and I, I wanted to see what you think about this, is the idea that, okay, these people travel all the way, they land on this planet, 
they can do whatever they want. You can start your society however you want. And all they do is recapitulate the worst shit that our planet, our countries, our societies have done. And so what, as you read the book, what, is, what does that tell you? Like, what, or what do you think about that when you read this book and you see that all they've done is just recycle the same bullshit, the same political economy, the same power structures? You know, as much as like the optimist in me likes to think that if you sent a, a group of people to another planet, no one else was there, they could do whatever they wanted. The optimistic part of me likes to think that they would try and make something better. But the realistic part of me thinks that that's probably not what would happen. Yeah. And I do think it's uh, it's kind of interesting because like that first group of people who ends up being kind of the bosses, it's like explicitly it was a penal colony. They were criminals. So part of me has to wonder as I'm reading this and I'm like, did this get this kind of cycle get perpetuated because now these people, since they're the first people here, they have the chance to be the boss. Like these were people like they were prisoners. It doesn't say what for ever. Right. Um, but you know, they were, they were criminals of some, of some fashion could be something we would consider justly criminal, or they could have been a bunch of people who got caught selling weed. Like we don't know, but um you do, it does make you wonder, like, are they recreating this structure because now they have a chance to be on the top because they're the first people there? Yeah, I mean, I feel that's, it, it's so strange, but I see that all the time. It's, it, oh, it, oh, just over the last, say, 100 years, anybody who has been oppressed, if they give, like, don't even look out inside, think about school. This happens in school all the time, right? Or it mm-hmm. happens with my own kids. I only have, I have two kids, right? six and three and if one of them is oppressed i'm putting that in quotation marks because to us you know kids everything's an oppression to a kid if something happens to them that they don't like and the other one gets to do a thing the minute that the tables are turned there's just such uh schadenfreude they love it they love that the other one Mm -hmm. ha ha now you're in pain you were deprived i'm on top i have this thing and I see that sometimes when I teach classes where, uh, or I've been in, I remember from school, if you were in teams or groups or something, and one group did well, and then the other one time, the other group's on top, there's this immense like power shift where it's like, haha, fuck you. Now we get to lord it over you. And maybe that's just a part of quote unquote human nature. Maybe there's no way around that. Maybe that's something that has yeah. to be evolved out. I don't know, but that has to be part of what that is. Also, I think that. Part of what she's saying in this book is that humans have a profound lack of imagination. And from reading her her essays, I know that she is someone who's like, the imagination is one of the least worked on capacities in the human. And when, but when it's flourishing, it's the best, right? Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I was, I, I was when what I was thinking of when I was reading this um, with kind of the the power dynamic that gets set up. The two examples historically that I was thinking of were like kind of the obvious ones, like the penal colonies in Australia, where but that's got a little bit different because you know the the prisoners who were sent there were still being lorded over by the English. Um, but they, you know, kind of a lot of them would use their kind of power and they would abuse the native people there, the indigenous people. The other one that I really thought about was, um, and I think this one, even though it doesn't have the like penal colony 
parallel. I think the actual like actions almost line up more is or maybe just because I'm more familiar with the history of it, um, is the Puritans. So they're actually like really dumped on in England. They really are oppressed in England and people do like to kind of forget that. Um, and so when they go to North America, instead of being like, well, we were really oppressed in England. So let's, let's create a society where no one is, no one has to feel like that anymore. They just become <laughs> like just as oppressive. They're just on top. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, to each other too, not even just to the natives, oh, yeah, but yeah. to each other. And that was something that I was thinking about a lot. I'm like, you know, as much as I want to say, like, oh yeah, if we if we sent a bunch of people to um, you know, to to colonize an uninhabited planet, um, I think that they would make a good society of like historically, I don't think that that has much of a precedent. No. That's why I have just to be like on the SF topic for a second. Um if if you know goofus elon musk decides to or is successful with <laughs> that was an appropriate so that was my sound husband for that. Sneezing. <laughs> that yeah, it was. that was appropriate for elon musk a, a very uh, elephant like sneeze um so if, if we do succeed in that if we do succeed in going to mars or we're we going to the moon or whatever uh, and having setting up these colonies or towns or cities or company towns probably what they'll be you know it's like yeah it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be, you know, capitalism in space. And so there's not going to be any opportunity mm-hmm. to think differently about what the most optimal human relationship could be. Because whoever, if, if someone makes it capable to go into space, they're just going to perpetuate what they're doing. Going to Mars or going to the moon or going to Victoria or wherever these other uh, planets are, it's just, it's not not going to happen um we know for some reason we're just not capable of thinking about anything new and i think one of the 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 book both starts and ends with this um native creature of the planet called a watsit w-o-t-s-i-t and it's this sort of Mm -hmm. shape i want one they sound so cute yeah they're like a frog thing but then they're like clear with wings and they have like three eyes i don't know there's all kinds of stuff it's like very classic sf kind of creature but th- later in the book, there's a mention of if you capture one and you put it in a cage, because it, it changes and morphs all the time. Um, if you capture one, it will just run through a bunch of changes and then turn into like basically a brown turd-like thing and then die. So if you mm-hmm. cage one, you kill it. And I was like, well, that's a pretty, pretty bold metaphor for, for exactly what's going on here, right? Uh, I don't know. What did you think about the, I mean, obviously it's a metaphor, it's some very direct image, but what did that speak to you uh, about in the book? Anything in particular? The heron too is also a very <laughs> big it, image, obviously. Right. Um, I think that the, uh, that, that image, I think the obvious parallel is like the, the literal caging of the people and like preventing them from, going and and flourishing and like basically living their best lives as they see fit and then you know you wither and you're you're not you don't have that full potential but i do think that that kind of almost creativity metaphor that imagination metaphor works really well too not just a literal like here look it's the situation of the characters that's in the book but i think it can work on that level as well where like yeah if you are constantly having all of these 
constraints put on your imagination eventually you know whatever kind of fantastical thing you might have been able to imagine at one point you kind of can't anymore um whether it you know be kind of because like you know you know imagination is kind of like a muscle and if you don't use it it'll atrophy or if it's just like you just feel so badly that you can't do it anymore like you you maybe could but you you won't um yeah i i I liked that image a lot um and i I want one of those little guys so much they just sound so cool they did the heron sound well then that's not really a heron it's something that looks like a heron on earth but it's its own creature there um and it's sort of like a weird cipher the creature sort of they're distant they don't they're not bothered by the humans, but they also don't want them to get too close. They're often in pairs. And multiple times in the book, characters who see this creature mention that it's sort of a classic, like Le Guin image or, or um, theme that you see something and there's no center in it. And so you are able to put what you want into it. It's an act of imagination to see yourself in this other thing, which is also a radical mm-hmm. form of empathy, et cetera. All these very Le Guinian themes that um, consistently come up over and over again. But the one of the things that um, struck me was that the hair, just like we were talking about with the Watson, like you can't cage this little creature because it'll basically die. It's also the same thing of, tying with the imagination you could make it a direct metaphor and say oh it's the caging of these people we're not allowed to let them do that but it could be for all humans right that everybody mm-hmm. who's on this planet is going to die if they don't think of a new whatever ideology is caging them right you, we've brought the same cage right. from earth and just put ourselves all inside of it doesn't matter where you go you know we're all mm-hmm. doomed if we keep repeating the same crap but also these herons don't like being bothered but they're also fine to be by other people which i thought was like we need to be able to like let other people just do what the fuck they want to do. Like we need to be leaving people alone a lot more, I think to some degree, Mm -hmm. right? Like getting the fuck out of people's lives and letting them like, I I don't know. Like, yeah. Like just kind of like if, if you're not, not doing anything that's, um, you know, actually actively harmful, like infringing on, on my life, you do what you will. And I think that, yeah, it kind of is the herons. Like, they're, they they don't, yeah, they don't bother people. Um, you know, they're not coming in and making trouble for anybody. But they also are, just, they just kind of want to be left to their own devices, despite not really being bothered or bothering people. Um, I did think it was so interesting. I could never, like, just just the the heron the creature itself i i kept trying to think like why why a heron like does it does a heron have some kind of like symbolic meaning that i mean i guess like literally you could look at the you could say okay well probably like whatever this creature looks like cuz it's never like super like in depth described no there's only one moment so i guess yeah, so I guess the uh, the assumption is like, well, we're going to call it a heron because it looks kind of like a heron. Um, but I was wondering if, like, I never could find anything that pointed me one direction or the other, if there was any particular reason for it being a heron on, like, a symbolic level. I guess they have, um, like, there's herons by, there's a, a lake that I live not not very far from in a park, and there's herons there. And they're such, 
they really are kind of peaceful, just, like, looking at them. They really don't bother people. Um, I guess they do kind of seem like kind of contemplative animals. Like, they seem very peaceful. You, you want to watch them and just, like, think about stuff. Because they're not really ever doing anything that's, like... Violent. You know, it, it, it's not like... They don't, well, they don't even do anything that's, like, funny. So, like, no. you're never just, like, they're super amused by them or anything either. They're very graceful and they're very kind of calm. Yeah, I think... Um, and also probably where Le Guin lived in Portland, I'm sure she saw quite a bit of these. So maybe that was... Um, yeah. And I can see why even just like on an aesthetic level you would pick like a heron instead of like a parrot or a crow or something like that because they are kind of weird looking like they're a little bit alien looking just in general i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) he had covid too yeah no hey we it's 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 perfect um (laughs) it's, it's really funny actually uh so i'm gonna read a small section Oh, actually, where the heron is mentioned. So there's a character we haven't talked about yet. His name is Lev. In fact, he starts the book off. Um, Lev He's Schultz. kind of the like stealth protagonist that you... Not yeah. Stealth, Luz is kind of the stealth protagonist. You kind yeah. of assume Lev is going to be the main guy. You're with him. And he spoilers, does. he's not. Yeah, the spoiler alert. He's, <laughs> he's the Ned Stark. Yeah, he gets capped. Okay, so... Um, and I'm not really... He's, he's not very interesting to me. But anyway... Um, He's fine. So Lev, okay, so as he sat now on the hard, broad root of the ring tree at the edge of the meeting pool, he thought of Nana, of the cat, of the silver water of Lake Serene, of the mountains above it, which he longed to climb, of climbing the mountains out of the mist and rain into the ice and brightness of the summits. He thought of many things, too many things. He sat still, but his mind would not be still. He had come here for stillness, but his mind raced, raced from past to future and back again. Only for a moment did he find quiet. One of the herons walked silently out into the water from the far side of the pool. Lifting its narrow head, it gazed at Lev. He gazed back and for an instant was caught in that round, transparent eye, as depthless as the sky clear of clouds. And the moment was round, transparent, silent. A moment at the center of all moments. The eternal present moment of the silent animal. The heron turned away, bent its head, searching the dark water for fish. So that was one of that's one of the moments where the heron is sort of like focused on, and it's this uh, depthless place, a transparent place, a, a transparent, silent moment, the center of all moments. It's a very contemplative, meditative moment, and so it makes mm-hmm. sense, I guess, that they would name, they end up naming where they live, heron, um, or heron pool, um, and it makes sense that they would, if the people of peace would want to name where they live. Um, after some animal that they greatly admire. After this, the two groups confront each other because they want to swap um, what they call hostages. Vera from the town is staying in the city, as we'd mentioned. And then Luz, who's the daughter of the mayor, has gone to live with the people in the town. And there's this idea that from the oligarch oppressive side that they're keeping hostages, but the, the people of peace, she not, wants to be there. They want to be there. That's the, that's the thing though, is that as you read this, you get so frustrated because these people only have one view of the world. They don't understand. Like it, it's, it's the most single minded thing you've ever seen is that if you go up to someone, you say, I'm going to do this thing. And they go, no, you can't do that. It's breaking the law. And you're like, well, but we don't actually 
acknowledge your law. They're like, okay, well now you're uh, you're disobeying. We have to arrest you. We're gonna kill you. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it, it, it there's no alternative method of thinking through things. It's only one path. They right, um, and they don't ever really try to do like a like any kind of compromise no. or, or really much of anything. It's pretty much just like, uh, you can't do that. Well, sorry, I I want to do that, but you can't do that. Yeah, they don't even talk about it. There's no. I mean, if you're looking for some sort of like deep intellectual conversation between the two groups in this book, that doesn't happen. It happens between people inside their own groups about what they do and whether mm -hmm. what they're doing is the right thing. But yeah, that kind of crossover compromise doesn't happen. So here's, here's a good example of, of this. So this is after the 17 people have died during this sort of confrontation. And Lev, as we mentioned, is one of them. And Luz and Vera are talking uh, now. They're back in their own um, town. Uh, in the in the smaller place, and they were talking about why did we bother doing any of this stuff? Like, all of our nonviolence got all these people killed. So, like, what was the point? You know, like, um, what if we just ran away? Um, and <laughs> one of the people said, "A uh, no order." Lou says, "No order was given." So there was time for the marchers to rush in on them. Uh, these are other character names are going to be mentioned here. Andre thinks that if my father hadn't turned on Macmillan, the person, the bad guy, basically, who started the whole massacre, there would have been no fighting at all, just them shooting and the marchers running. And no betrayal of our principles, said Southwind, another character. Perhaps if we hadn't rushed forward, the city men wouldn't have fired in self-defense. Okay, I can come back to that in a second. And only Lev would have been killed, Luz said. But Macmillan would have ordered them to all to fire. He'd started it. If the marchers had run away sooner, yes, maybe fewer would have been shot, and no city men beaten to death. Your principles would be all right, but Lev would still be dead, and Macmillan would be alive. Elia was looking at her with an expression she had not seen before. She did not know what it meant, this uh, detestation, perhaps, or fear. Why? Vera said in a pitiful dry whisper. I don't know, Luz said, and because it was such a relief to be saying these things, talking about them instead of hiding them and saying everything was all right, she actually laughed. Do I understand what my father does, what he thinks, what he is? Her father, again, is the mayor of the city. Maybe he went insane. That's what old Marquez told Andre last week. I know if I'd been where he was, I would have killed Macmillan too. But that doesn't explain why he did it. There is no explanation. This is the important part. It's easiest to say he was insane. You see, that's what's wrong with your ideas, you people. They're all true. That is the civil disobedience, right? Like your, your peaceful mm -hmm. ideas, they're all true. All right and true. Violence gains nothing. Killing wins nothing. Only sometimes nothing is what people want. Death is what they want and they get it. So that was a long excerpt. I'm sorry, but I wanted to get to the point where she says, Sometimes nothing is what people want. Death is what they want. And I know that's like a cheap version of the Dark Knight part where Alfred's like, some men just want to watch the world burn or whatever. But like, mm -hmm. you know, okay. But to some degree, there is a truth in that, right? Like, I, what could you say about the current conservative politicians in this country? I don't see anything edifying there. It's a death cult. <laughs> yeah, it's a total death cult, you know? And uh, I've made that clear. My expressions on that clear uh, else on this podcast and elsewhere. Um, and I think 
to some degree, if you scratch the surface a little bit, it's it's it is this is total need for total eradication. And so that's that's what's going on here is just that these things are just going to perpetuate further outward. Um, and I don't know what what do you think is the what stops all that? Like, because these people eventually get to go into their own valley. I mean, the thing is though, after Lev dies and these characters are sort of like carrying on, we realize that okay. There's not going to be a war between these two groups. The people of peace sort of sneak out to go anyway, right? Because Mm -hmm. Luz's argument is they're not going to follow you. Like they're going to be too caught up in their own bullshit in the city to like send out resources to go get you to come back. And so they do basically. And the last like 20 pages of the book is about like them traveling through really, really. I don't know. It's almost like nature writing. I don't know. What'd you think about like the last 20, 25 pages? There's not really like, it doesn't ascend to any it's kind not of plotty. climax. Yeah. There's no plot. It's not climax. It's just like, they're struggling and they are just trying to find a place to live. And then they do. And then the book ends. <laughs> it's a very, yeah. Uh, I, it's yeah. a weird ending. I think like with most, most writers in like science fiction or fantasy, you'd expect there to, there to, be like more of a climax and to come to more of a head there to be some sort of like you know like showy protest or some hunger game stuff or something but (laughs) in this one they're like we will just leave they're not gonna send any um you know they're not gonna waste their resources coming after us um they'll figure it out on their own i guess once we're gone and again this is one of those where i'm like i don't know how realistic the scenario would be in real life if something like this were to happen, if if a, a bunch of people were to, I don't know, decide they were sick of being in Texas and go <laughs> and leave, if people would would come after them or not. Um, I'm not sure. I do, from the, the viewpoint of just the story, I actually kind of like that they you know, they just kind of get what they need by being a little bit underhanded. It's not cruel, it's not mean, it's not harmful, but it's a little bit sneaky, and I kind of like that. And I do like that the the end of the story, it's like, yeah, it's like 20 pages of nature writing. They're talking about this um, this landscape they're traversing and um, how they're going to set up this new place, and it's it's very peaceful. It's it's actually kind of like just reading it, it's like kind of calming and soothing. And there's never really like and other than the the con- conflict where where Lev and some of the other people are killed, there's really not any um like high stakes or emotionally like supercharged scenes or anywhere where you're like biting your nails wondering what's going to happen next. So it, it it feels maybe not like realistically correct but like as a story it feels correct for it to end that way yeah no i agree here's a towards the towards the very end this is like maybe eight pages from the end um um Luz is talking to another person and they've decided they're gonna build cabins not shelters because they really want to make it permanent where they are um and a character says to her they say when you're lost really lost you always go in a circle you come back to where you started from, only you don't always recognize it, which is, again, another T.S. Eliot sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He, uh, this isn't the city, Luz said, nor the town. 
which I think is a good acknowledgement that this is not, we don't have to do any of the things that we've done prior. No, not yet. Not ever, she said, her brows drawn down straight and harsh. This is a new place, a beginning place. <gasps> Flash forward to Title the Title drop book. for another. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, it, what you said is like, I think she's constantly trying to, and for people who read the beginning place and have listened to the conversation, the previous episode about how that was like a, a meta fantasy or an anti-fantasy fantasy book, she's trying to mess with genre and plot and stuff. This is definitely one of those things where you would expect all the violence or some sort of a climax to be at the end, but it's like three fourths of the way through. And the last fourth is just the anti version of that where people are just like the real issues of trying to solve a, a society's problem. Like, how do we get there? We have to walk. How do we walk? Which direction do we go? What should we eat? When should we stop? What should we pay attention to? You know, like those are the real questions instead of like laser gunfights or, you know, yeah. res rescuing somebody. It's like often what you have is like right now, like if you look in the news, it's like all this horrible shit is going on around us. And we're like, oh, well, in a book, there'd be some sort of like one ultimate fight and then shit would get done and then everyone would feel good. And it's like, no, it's just sort of like mediocre shit keeps happening and people say things and then we just like eat more burritos and go to sleep, you know, and we rinse and repeat until we're dead. It's just much more anticlimactic yeah. than that, you know? And so not that she's trying to be like isomorphic with reality, like I have to copy it, but I just like, she's constantly trying to challenge what these stories should look like all the time which as a writer, I really mm -hmm. enjoy that she's trying to push that stuff. Yeah, I, I really like, I, I do, I also really like that, that it's, it's not just like, like she's, she's one of the authors that in, in fantasy in particular, like I keep like going back to thinking about because she's not like, She's neither like like an Earthsea, I would say. She's neither like slavishly adhering to a kind of like Joseph Campbell template or any of the other ones right. that you could kind of expect from a fantasy story. Like it doesn't feel like Lord of the Rings. It doesn't feel like Dungeons and Dragons or any of the stuff that has kind of become like the template for fantasy. But at the same time, she's also not like pulling a Jar Jar or Martin and like, let's see how I can subvert this and surprise you. It's just like kind of like, I'm just gonna she does what they, the, the, the people in this, she goes off and does her own thing. And you, I, I really admire that. Did you read, um, it was just on the wiki page. It was something like, um, for this book that when she was writing it, she, she was in the throes of trying to like understand, uh, feminist theory. She was reading a lot of feminist theory. Mm -hmm. She was trying to not. I was actually going to bring that up. I have that wiki page pulled yeah. up right now. I liked that quote from the interview. Go ahead, read it. Because she was saying like, sh sh the male character, Lev, she's like, you're not supposed to die like halfway through, but the character's just like, naturally, that's where he's going to stop. And she's, she that that makes sense. She's yeah. Doing. yeah. So yeah, go, what is it? What was the quote? Yeah. So there's this quote, she was interviewed in 1995. And, and this is actually when I read this, this actually made me more surprised that this book doesn't get talked about very much because clearly it had some importance to her. So she says, I gradually realized that my own fiction was telling me that I could no longer ignore the feminine. While I was writing The Eye of the Heron in 1997, the hero insisted on destroying himself before the middle of the book. Hey, I said, you can't do that. You're the hero. Where's my book? I stopped writing. 
the book had a woman in it, but I didn't know how to write about women. Um, I blundered around a while and then found some guidance in feminist theory. I got excited when I discovered feminist literary criticism was something I could read and actually enjoy. I read the Norton Book of Literature by Women from cover to cover. It was a Bible for me. It taught me that I didn't have to write like an honorary man anymore, that I could write like a woman and feel liberated in doing so. So I really liked that because I... um. And I know she has, like, kind of Earthsea goes through this a bit as well, where, like, the the very first book, Wizard of Earthsea, is kind of a a, a typical, it, it's the most Campbell-like without being Campbell-like, but it is kind of a, a, a hero's I don't want to say typical because nothing she writes is really, it is a hero's story, right. and it is of a, a boy to, to adult man coming of age story. Um, that's not... Like, it's not so far out of left field from what you would expect from myth or from fantasy. And then once you get into Tombs of Atuan, that uh, Tanar is the main character that kind of flips it a little bit. It's a little bit different. Um, <clears throat> and then by the time she's gotten to writing Tahanu, it's completely, it's completely yeah. different. It's a, a much... Um, Ged's not even really the... Much, I don't think about him when I read that book. Not yeah. really. No. I mean... That, and that, that one... That one's my favorite out of all the Earthsea books. And I think it's because of what she does in that. The characters are so, I mean, her characters are always very good, but especially in that book, mm-hmm. it's like she realized I can do whatever I want. I don't really care anymore. And, 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 right. and she, she, she's saying that she did that with the Eye of the Heron. And, I, and I'm sure she did. You can see she did. But I don't think she really reached like peak capacity in that until Tahanu. So, which was right. later, what, and- 90s, maybe? The late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember when that book was published. I don't remember that one off the top of my head. But yeah, so I think that that was really interesting because that was almost something I kind of sensed while I was reading the book. Uh, was as I was reading and, you know, anytime they'd focus on Lev, I'm like, he feels like he's supposed to be the main character, but he's also like not the main character. And then he dies and Luz definitely like steps in to fill that main character slot. And... um. I mean, I was enjoying the book the whole way through, but that's where I was really kind of perking up because I think that her her kind of struggle, I felt, even though the there's not like big world stakes in her kind of kind of struggle, but she has kind of the 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 two of them going together at once. It's with how she wants to join the people of the town and leave. She doesn't want to be under the thumb of this kind of corrupt oligarchy anymore, um, even though her she is afforded a place of privilege because of her father's position. So she has the kind of class struggle that also kind of goes alongside her being a woman and being kind of disenfranchised and disempowered. Not really, not in like actively like cruel or malevolent ways but like i I, it feels like kind of a lot of benevolent sexism in this um well isn't she very much it seemed to me the thing that got her thinking about wanting to get out of this of the city of where she is was because one of the main goons that her father has hired he's basically just like a gunman basically he's just leading this private army to go trample all over the the peaceful people she's worried that he's like coming after her basically that he like wants her as his wife 
and she's feeling like no one's going, she definitely doesn't want it. And she also feels like no one's going to stop him from getting what mm-hmm. he wants. And so her autonomy is threatened and he never outwardly says anything, right? He never makes any, no. there's no clear expression, just the fear. You know, of it, he's like, it's not like making a pass exactly. or like, like there's not like, you don't see have a scene of like, him like talking to her father or something about trying to get arrangements made. He doesn't like come on to her, do anything that's, but she knows that like, this is an option for not an option. This is a, because that implies that there's a choice, but um, this is like a likelihood for me. If I stay in this society is this is my future. This is what I end up with. And I don't want that. Like, I don't want to be like some psychopaths arm candy. Basically. So the only thing she can do, Well, the thing that she realized, well, Just leave it. Well, and Vera tells her there's like, you know, you should be able to, she sort of slowly talks to her, right? That's, she's like the Jiminy Cricket mm-hmm. type thing. Like she's there in the house and they're becoming friends and she's getting to know her. And, and she starts to come around to like, yeah, I could just go and leave. And they start seeing eye to eye. And that's when she's like, I'm just going to go. And so she. Yeah. I kind of love that the like kind of powerful and like transformative relationship in the book is a friendship between an older woman and a younger woman. I think that's really cool. You don't really see a whole lot. Even now you don't see a ton of that. Um, I feel like you see a lot of stories um, and and it it is very kind of archetypical of like stories centered around like male heroes where they'll have an older mentor figure who is, is their friend too. But I feel like you don't see as much of that in, at least in science fiction fantasy and other genres, it's different. But in science fiction fantasy, you don't see as much of the kind of the mentor friendship between like inner like the kind of mentor slash intergenerational friendship between women. You don't really see as much of that. So that was something else that I really liked. And I found like. Like really relatable because I have relationships like that with I am friends with older women who are kind of like mentors to me. And I felt like that's something that's not. Unless it's like directly like mother daughter, it doesn't really get addressed very right. much. And I actually don't know. I can't speak to this directly, but I don't know if I see that happening a lot normally. Like I think it's very it's very accepted and very normal to see like a lot of like older guys with younger guys out in the world having like these like mentor mentee relationships through business or through mm-hmm. you know sports or something, but. Even academia, education. Right, exactly. I think academia, you see that yeah. a lot. And I I don't know if it's just because it gets kind of, it's not always in as public of a sphere. Um, or or if it's just, it's, but it's definitely not written about, I don't think, as much. I mean, I think, like, two of the most influential women in my life are my dance teachers, and I'm friends with them. And, like, they're not, you know, it's not a relative. It's not... You know, they're, they're people, and I think so much of the, so much intergenerational writing about women is focused on blood relatives. It's, you know, a woman and her granddaughter, or a woman and her mom, her aunt, but it's not two people who are mentors and like, um, because they're friends or because one is taking classes for another one's a business mentor or anything like that. So that was something else. The, the relationship between Luz and Vera was something that I I really, really liked about this book. And it felt really fresh, even though the book is, even though the book is from the seventies, like even, even now in the year of our Lord, 2022, I feel like I still don't (laughs) see very much of that. I know. I, uh, I wrote, um, 
the personal anecdote i wrote a novel like three years ago that had a main character was a woman in her 20s and her boss at her job which is at a library was a sort of like older stern you know like takes no bullshit kind of person and they didn't like each other mm -hmm. but over the course of whatever like you know the, the plot of the book they have to like rely on each other and they and I because I thought about it, I was like I don't I don't see stuff like that and it comes to be that they like they're they've become close friends and they become very reliant on each other and so and and that book was not um, uh, warmly welcomed by the traditional publishing community when when it was submitted. So I don't know. Maybe there's something to that, unfortunately. But um, good timing. This, is, this, this has been one of the, the pretty classic so part of this. No, 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 no. I'm well, really... you know, it's going to be something. It's going to be someone sneezing, or it's going to be someone's something. cat. In my um, my. Uh, the way my office is, there's like a cutout kind of in the wall. Like it doesn't yeah. actually go all the way up to the ceiling. So unfortunately, it's not the best sound wise. It's a sneeze window. That's what it's there for. Yeah. It's to, it's to let you know that someone's in distress. Um, well, why don't hey, we... no one will sneak up on me? Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so what have we what are major things do you think we've been leaving out of the conversation about this novel? I mean, it's pretty tight. It's pretty short. It's not like a huge cast of characters. The plot is yeah. I think that's fairly character. Yeah, I feel like it's fairly characteristic of Le Guin in that sense. Most of her writing, at least that I've read, I know she does have some longer works, but most of them are most of them are pretty trim. She has like stylistically, she's not um, she's not a, a florid writer particularly. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, pretty, but it's not ever like but not overloaded. No. Yeah. No, you're not going to go through like labyrinthine constructions um and her her diction is pretty um she's not going to send you to the dictionary probably if you're <laughs> yeah. over the age of 10. Yeah. No. Like but it's still really it's very clean, it's really beautiful. She's like kind of my go-to when when um if I'm thinking of like who do I give uh as an example of someone who writes really beautifully without being particularly ornate she's one of the first ones that i'll go to um yeah she's like the uh the i have like kind of like a spectrum i guess of styles like the uh in terms of i guess kind of like sparse versus flowery uh Le Guin is kind of the the extreme sparse end of where i like any more than that and i'm probably not going to enjoy it and then on the um on the extreme flowery end would be like a Angela Carter or uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne is that's where I like it. If you go further than that, it's probably going to be a bit much for me. If you can go further than Le Guin on the sparse end, it's probably going to be a, not enough. So that's kind of my range. Yeah, <laughs> Those are my yeah. borders. That's Le Guin de Carter. Yeah, Le Guin de Carter. That'd be a good uh, essay title too. That makes sense. It'd be a good podcast. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, one is enough. Right I now. actually one is enough. You're right. Uh, <laughs> Oh, okay. I didn't know if you're going to. I need say. to read more Carter. I've only read The Bloody Chamber, but it's like amazing. Yeah. Well, I will say just to to add on to this, I guess to end, maybe like if you like Le Guin, Carter will be a natural bridge, I think for sure. So, yeah, um, definitely. There's a, a kind of there's definitely a similar sort of feminist sensibility between Carter and kind of not so much earlier Le Guin that I've read, but like the later stuff 
particularly like Tahanu. Uh, although Carter gets uh, gets pervier. Like <laughs> Le Guin is pretty. Uh, you're you wouldn't feel suspect or feel like you're being sketchy by recommending a 12 year old read any Le Guin in terms of content Mm -hmm. you would probably feel like that if you told a 12 year old to read like the bloody chamber (laughs) yeah Angela Carter will get you uh put in horny jail uh there's there's definitely some some lewdness there something's going on there it's not lewd it's just I don't know she's it's Carter's yeah upfront about sexuality it's just that's how it is yeah, um, and I, that is actually the one thing I kind of wish Le Guin would do a little bit more of, just because I feel like that's, that's one, one area where I feel, I, not so much because I'm like, you know, a horrible pervert and think that everything needs to be racy, just because I kind of want to know what, like, what, what her views would be, like, what, what she would think about, because um, I just think she's such a, as a writer, she's just like a really fascinating thinker and, and her her thoughts on different things as they come out and are expressed in her writing is really interesting to me. And that seems to be like the the big, uh, kind of the big facet. She does gender, but, excuse me, not as much sexuality. And that seems to be like the, the, the big facet of like human existence she kind of treads lightly around. Yeah, um, I agree with that, yeah. Not, gender she obviously does. Right. Um but the sexual does address a lot more. But sexuality, uh, individual sexuality, group sexuality. Not so much. Not so much, and you know, I don't really know enough about her biography, or I've not written, or I've not really read around enough of the literature to to see if there's any sort of take on that. But that's something mm-hmm. I've definitely thought about as I've read through all of her work, because there's not. I mean, there's love, and there's um, maybe not. There's romance. there's some romance. There's affection. There's, there's like, like good affection between characters and Ged and Tinar have sex in Tihanu. Right. But it's not in that and it's it's definitely framed in a more kind of romantic sense. It's not particularly earthy. No. And uh it's depiction. Yeah. Um You're not gonna get like you know. I think it's very beautiful. Like it's it's like how she writes. It's very beautiful. They have a very beautiful relationship, but it's it doesn't really give you a sense of what her thoughts particularly are right, because right. it's not not a focus. Yeah, not part of it. Well, I think perhaps this might be as good as anywhere to sort of like wrap it up. Were there any final thoughts you wanted to give on the? Uh... Eye of the Heron by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, it's underrated. I'm going to go out and say that. Um, I know it's it's de- definitely not talked about very much, and it's definitely considered to be like a lesser Le Guin novel. But also, like a lesser Le Guin novel is like better than the best showing that exactly. a lot of writers could hope for. And yeah. I'm I'm including myself. I'm including no, most people I know. It- in the in the the previous episode about <laughs> the beginning place, which was in a similar published around the same time as this novel and the same length, and is not science fiction but fantasy, and again, Tor published those two sort of closely to uh, to each other. The copy that you have, when I mm-hmm. I've told the story in the last episode, but I'll say it again because it was it's related to this. I was at my first con uh, outside Pittsburgh, and David G. Hartwell, who was a big editor at Tor at the time was there in the dealer's room selling used books. And I was talking to him and I was buying some books from him and I saw these two 
And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even know these two books even existed. I had not heard of them, right? Mm-hmm. They're not talked about. And he he looked at me and he said, as I said in the last episode, he's like, they're minor Le Guin. That's what he said. Minor Le Guin. And I was like, I couldn't conceive of what that even meant. Like, how does Ursula right. Le Guin write something minor? What I think he meant was that perhaps it's not as powerful. It doesn't have the kind of impact that like the Earthseed books do or that any of her big sci-fi books do. But it doesn't mean... You shouldn't read them, obviously, because Tor republished them. So to me, I, I agree with you, Maddie, that the idea there is it's an underrated book. It's not perhaps one of the best showing. I wouldn't point someone to Le Guin there first, but after you've read, you know, a handful of a books. Others. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. What I would out. say, and you said a little earlier, is if you've read the fantasy um, if you read Ursi and her some or some of her other fantasy books, and you liked those, would have been kind of hesitant to jump into the science fiction because you're not normally a science fiction reader. That's where I would say this book probably really shines yes. because it's not, it doesn't throw you with a whole bunch of like weird like scientific concepts. It doesn't, you know, you're you're still dealing with human characters. There's alien animals, but you're not like expected to understand their biology or anything complicated. Exactly. Um, and then the, the plot itself is very interpersonal and intrapersonal focused. It's not, I mean, it is a big ideas plot, but it's like a big political ideas plot, not a big science ideas. Exactly. Plot. Yeah. That's it's more sociological, more political, more psychological. It's the big, the big idea is dealt with through the individual character individual characters mm-hmm. just like you said so yeah so definitely. that's where i would say that that i think this book really shines is if you want a nice little taste of kind of kind of what her science fiction is like um and have enjoyed the fantasy because in some ways it feels more like a fantasy book like you could completely just like nix out the fact that this is a like planetary penal colony formerly if you just gave it another planet name it could be a fantasy book right and I think that's probably why some people sort of just skip over this is because it doesn't have all the usual trappings of SF and doesn't have any sort of like signals or signs of any type of like science fantasy either. It's Yeah, there's it's her, there's no wizards or thing. dragons in this no. one. And she's just doing her thing. And I think that's you know, you either get on board or you don't. And I think that's why it's sort of like relegated to the back to the back of the room sometimes. So but check it out. The Eye of the Heron. Um very good. I've been talking with Maddie Lewis. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. And and uh, I'm so excited to finally talk about this book because I like, know no we're going to get it out it. there. We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> pump people up. They're gonna go check it out. Hopefully, uh, they'll comment. They'll let us know what they think about it. That'd be great. Maybe people can start like little reading groups and read Eye of the Heron and read all the other quote unquote minor Le Guin, which, as you said, is better than most other stuff today. So. Yeah, I mean, it's better than most of her stuff, period. Yeah, well, there you go. I couldn't have, well, I didn't have to say it. You said it for me. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) it. And go get your husband a Kleenex. He, or a mini Kleenex. He's a loud sneezer. Loud sneezer. Well, you know what? We we love him. We can't all be perfect. We we still (laughs) accept him. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for having me. You too.